taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics while taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo, and I'm joined by Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Welcome aboard, everyone. Uh, we've been praying for you. Uh, I want to read a scripture verse over, over you all today. Uh, and that psalm is uh, Psalm 75.3. And it's something that hit me today as I was reading through. And I, I, uh, I just, it's something that hit me. Uh, and I want, I want this to be something that maybe encourages you, that you know that God is there holding this. And 75.3 says, when the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. The Lord is holding those pillars steady, those pillars that we can hold on to, the truth, the truth that we know, the truth of Scripture, the things, the wisdom that God gives us. These are the pillars that he gives us to hold on to. And I just want to encourage you all to take some time and just ponder that thought. Know that we're going to be going through some rough times in this culture. Uh, and that's what Bellator Christie is here for. It's for us to be able to have this discussion and be able to step out and, and uh, encourage you all. Well, let's welcome the man behind the computer for this podcast of Bellator Christie, Brian Chilton. <laughs> the man behind the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was good. So, yeah, so we have a... A quick little clip here um, that I shared with you today. I'd like to maybe play that here. Yeah, absolutely. Let me get this pulled up. And 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 this this as we I love the points that you made in the intro, uh, Curtis. And this shows the need that we have to have men and women growing in the truth of God's word. And so, I want to play this clip for you. Uh, this is a guy off of Facebook. I didn't catch his name. You remember his name offhand? No. <laughs> that, that's fine. We'll go ahead and play this clip right quick. All right, guys. I've never really done anything like this before, but I feel like there's a huge problem among my fellow believers that really needs to be addressed here. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jacob Dufour, and I'm a Christian Jacob filmmaker. Dufour, that's his name. I recently joined several large Christian groups on Facebook to help promote my company's movies. As I began seeing other posts on the group, I noticed that most of them said things like, Comment Amen for Jesus. Keep scrolling for Satan. Or, if you comment amen, God will bless you with such and such, and that kind of garbage. And I thought to myself, this is a group of hundreds of thousands of people who profess to be Christians. Let's see how many are actually serious about it. So I decided to do something a little controversial, and if I was wrong in any way for doing it, I sincerely apologize. But I decided to do a little experiment. So I posted Luke 4, 7 in the group along with a caption, comment Amen if you agree. For those of you who don't know the verse by heart, Luke 4 7 says, If you worship me, all will be yours. Which at first seems like a pretty inspirational quote, until you realize it's being said by Satan as he's tempting Jesus. After one minute of it being posted, I had five Amens. Within the hour, I had over a hundred. As of the time of me saying this, the post has 666 likes, found that kind of ironic, 
and 576 comments. Out of those comments, only 20 people corrected me. That's 3.5%. 3.5. Almost 97% of the comments from supposed Christians were in agreement with something straight out of the devil's mouth simply because they sounded nice and were taken out of context. This is what's wrong with Christianity, guys. You know what 97% looks like on a chart? It looks like this. That's how many professing Christians did not take the time to learn what the Bible said, or to at least fact-check me before commenting. And it wasn't just your everyday believers commenting, either. One amen in particular, which has since been deleted, but not before I screenshotted it, was by a man whose account name was So-and-So Pastor. Now, I just wanted to make sure that his last name wasn't Pastor or anything, so I commented, Are you a pastor? Yes, he said. Do you realize who is speaking in this passage? Yes. Our Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus. A man who calls himself an overseer of God's church, an elder, a, a, a leader, is completely ignorant not only to who said this, but to the entire gospel of Jesus Christ and the entire reason that Jesus did what he did in the first place. Some other comments. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen and hallelujah. Amen, Lord. Thank you for everything you do for me and my family members. All my desires will be my possession. What? What do people think Christianity is? Jesus died so that we could be rich? So that life could be easy? No. Jesus died so that we could have eternal salvation. Anyone who thinks they'll be rewarded materially because they decided to follow Jesus is in for a big surprise because that ain't what it's all about. That's a bunch of prosperity gospel nonsense. It's false teaching, and it's taken right out of Satan's mouth in Luke 4-7. Read your Bible, guys. Know what it's about. Understand that there is false doctrine out there, and apparently 97% of us fall for it. 2 Timothy 4 says that for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's exactly what's happened, to the point that most of us don't even care enough about the truth to open our Bibles or to go on a Bible website to read it for ourselves. We just hear something, and if it sounds good, then we believe it. And that has to stop. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The Bible is important. Our salvation depends on our understanding of this book. We have to understand that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth, lived a perfect life, died a horrible, painful death, and rose again so that by following him we could have eternal life in heaven. That's it. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Not riches, not material blessings, not possessions everlasting life. Please share this video if you're so inclined. I really want to encourage Alright, that's uh, basically the end of it there. And so, uh, wow. Uh, <clears throat> scary, if you really stop to think about it, that uh, you know people were actually agreeing with the words of Satan uh, right. in the temptations of Jesus. Yeah, and that's why that, that, uh, that video clip um, just hit me hard because um, you know my passion about it is is uh, reading the word and and knowing that word and getting it into your into your blood and into your soul and into your mind so so you're not uh, 
you know, taken off course. Um, you know, in there, um, that was the words right out of Satan's mouth. But right behind it was, was uh, Jesus' words, and it says, It is written, You shall worship the God, the Lord God, and Him only shall mm. you serve. Absolutely. So, it, it's, it, I don't know, it's important to me, Brian, that we that we just keep stressing and doing what Bellator Christie's doing. Um, we just need to keep going. And absolutely, and that and that's that's why this ministry is here. Uh, you know, and fortunately, you know, with my testimony, you know, I had a time of doubt and was seeking answers, and I was actually chastised for asking some of the questions that I was, and so that's why this ministry is here to provide answers, biblical answers. Uh, you know, and obviously we go into philosophy and we go into other issues, but obviously we realize that the Scripture is God's uh, manual given to us. It is His written word given to us. So, I mean, the the truthfulness uh, of what we find in doctrine originates in Scripture. So, uh, we've got to know the Bible, folks, and and in a time, especially in a time when biblical illiteracy is at an all time high. And it. it I don't want to sound like I'm chastising anybody right now, but you have no excuse. There are apps galore out there to help you get into the Scripture and get into the Word. Um, there are ones that track and keep track of how many chapters you've read. Um, there's ones that put you on a track to be able to get you through the Bible in 300 days, 350 days, 300, a full year, 365, you know, all, all of those. There, there are so many things out there to be able to help you get through. Um, and, and once you start taking in some of the larger chunks of it, um, you don't get so bogged down um, in, in Leviticus as soon as, or, or numbers even. So as you get through, as you get rolling through the scripture, um, you know, a lot of people start out every year, hey, I'm going to read the Bible this year. And they get through Genesis and they get through Exodus and then they get into some of the... Uh, and they just are like, ah, I don't understand it. The thing is, the stuff you don't understand, keep reading. Because that will, that will bubble up at some point in time. The Holy Spirit will bring that up. It says in the scripture that, that the, the Spirit brings up the scripture into our lives as we talk or as we're doing things. But, but here's the key. And one of, our, one of the pastors that I, that I so dearly love, he said, but the thing is, you got to have the scripture in you for the spirit to bring it up. Mm, that's and, true. And so it's important. And I, I just, uh, to me, um, there are people out in third world countries right now that are just uh, screaming and yearning to have uh, even just a page of a Bible. Um, and we got it so readily available on, on every device we can. Um, there's tools out there. And if you need help um, finding some of those tools, um, feel free to email us, and uh, we'll set you set you in the right spot. Absolutely. So, anyway, we got a topic today that, uh, well, it might might be a little bit fun. Yeah, I think so. And <laughs> we, we may go over a normal time time limit, but that's fine. You don't want to take you want to take the. You know the amount of time we need to cover this, and obviously we won't go too long because we know you know we've got obligations too. But uh, but I think that uh, this this is something that I think that I hope people will 
will will really listen intently throughout this podcast and may it's maybe one that you need to go back and re-listen to as well because this is a philosophy we're going to talk about today that has really inundated uh, the American psyche uh, in more ways than we realize. And so obviously we're, we're talking about a particular topic and, and um, that, that I think that you really that you really need to, to um, master. I don't know if master is the right word, but you, you really need to be aware of that this is going on and that this philosophy is out there. Yeah, and the other thing is... is um, just to listen to it, and then you could even save it on your podcast apps and, and be able to go back and listen to it again after you've kind of chewed on it for a little while and go back and listen to it. But So the topic for the day is the naturalistic view on life. Absolutely. So, Brian, uh, and, I, and forgive me because my question on the first one, I'm, I'm going to kind of maybe add a little bit to it, but sure. um, it, it's, okay, so... What is naturalism, and is it different than atheism? So l- let me go ahead and first let me go ahead and first uh, a- answer this. It, it's not necessarily different than a- from atheism, but because uh, atheism is the belief in no God, you can be a naturalist and uh, be somewhat of an agnostic. Although I think it would be, I think naturalism is inclined. To follow suit with atheism, so let me let me first define. Uh, let me go in and define what naturalism is. Naturalism is the belief that nature and the observable world is is all that exists. Now, again, there are possibilities that someone might say, "Well, there may be something beyond this, but we don't know about it." We, you know, there could be there could be a god, uh, but he has no interaction with us. So it'd be more like a deistic type of understanding. So yeah. that's possible. But um, naturalists deny the normally deny the existence of the supernatural world. If they do believe in the supernatural world, they don't believe there's any, any interaction between the natural and supernatural. Uh, they don't believe in divine intervention, and as such, they deny any and all claims of miracles. Before the podcast, you and I were talking about a debate that Eric Hernandez had with one Aaron Ra. Um, and if you get a chance to check it out, I, I really highly encourage you to do so because Eric did a phenomenal job on this. They debate the existence of the soul. Eric, being a Christian, defends the existence of a soul. Aaron Ra, being an atheist, uh, denies it. But Aaron Ra is an internet atheist. He dabbled with the occult. Uh, and according to an interview he had with Skeptic Magazine, and this is how naturalism works, he, he believed that he had, as a teenager, seen, messing with the occult, seen demons and spirits. But because he later discounted the existence of the supernatural world, he then attributed his experiences to trickery of the mind since demons and spirits do not exist. So there's really circular reasoning if you think about it. So they would say, David Hume does the same thing. Back in the in the um, back in the what was it uh, eight, 1700s, I think seventeen hundreds I believe um, he he does the same thing saying that miracles can exist therefore any claim of the miracles don't uh, can't be proven therefore miracles don't exist so it's basically working itself in a circle in fact uh, Aaron Ra even said and these are his words from an interview the interview he did with Skeptic Magazine the things I remember happening didn't really happen because those things don't happen. Happen. And that's his logic behind it. 
So some theists may use methodological naturalism when doing forms of science. Theistic evolutionists may do may do uh, may be one such example. But uh, so there's a difference between methodological naturalism and the philosophical belief of naturalism. But uh, Simply put, just to reiterate, naturalism is the belief that nature and the observable world is all that exists or that is all that can be known to exist with any form of certainty. Hmm. Yeah, that's a. It, it's it, it. You can tell that it's not um, naturalism. It's kind of a morph or a twist off of uh, of atheism. Because you know, um, if you can still be or if you can still have a bit of a deist thought in it um that's not far off of some some uh other people that we know that hold to uh other world views um oh yeah you know um you know buddhism hinduism those kind of things well in, in buddhism is is a spirituality that agnostics and atheists can can actually use because uh buddha was ag- largely agnostic we don't really know of course, doing historical Buddhist research is difficult because the earliest testimony we have of Buddha comes some a thousand years after Buddha existed. So uh, it's very difficult to know, even within the Buddhist teachings, if he actually said that or not, said the things that are attributed to him or not. But uh, so it's believed that he was an agnostic. So you could believe or not believe in divine in divine. Uh, um, in, in, in God or supernatural world and still be somewhat of a of a uh, naturalist so to speak of course there would be some supernatural element as they believe in the transmigration of the soul or uh, or um, uh, reincarnation sim- more simply put but uh, the goal in Buddhism is to become nothingness in the end so you know that, that's you could somewhat be a naturalist and be a Buddhist perhaps yeah, it isn't like their core uh, core fundamental is to uh, lose all desires. Yeah, it, it really is. So they they uh, and and so part of their meditation, which you know, I don't I, I want to hear again make a distinction, a line of demarcation between uh, meditation as far as breathing and and focusing on God, and and the Buddhist example of clearing one's mind to become nothingness. Uh, that that's what Buddhists try to do in their meditations. They they try to become nothingness in in an attempt to ultimately become nothing, one with creation, and become nothingness in the end. Uh, so, but yeah, that that is the goal of uh, of Buddhism to to do that very thing. Right to lose all desire. But I'm pointing something out, and this is circular. Um, but to have the desire to lose all desires. That yeah, what you start out to be. That, that's a good point. And so there's there's almost like a self refuting claim in that you have the desire to lose all desires. <laughs> right, right, right. So, um, in naturalism, can a person be good and moral? Yeah, my answer may be surprising here. Uh, naturalists and atheists uh, can be moral good people. Uh, they can lead good, fulfilled, moral lives. Um, the, uh, however, their lives don't necessarily match their worldview. For instance, the questions asked, can Mormons be Christians? And I, and I would respond by saying, yes, uh, Mormons, Mormons can, be, uh, uh, can be Christians, but that's despite their worldview, not because of it. 
Uh, I mean, they can believe in Christ. They believe in Christ. They can certainly be, uh, you know, call upon the name of the Lord and, and be saved as, as anyone else can. But if they remain in the Mormon movement, uh, it would be not because of the teachings of Joseph Smith, but it would be because of their profession in Christ. So uh, anybody could lead a so-called good and moral life, but that doesn't mean necessarily that, uh, that their worldview backs up. Uh, the the good moral lives that they live. Hmm. And so it doesn't have the foundation uh, to be able to support their their pillars. Yeah, now, and they, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about this as we go through the podcast about their beliefs uh, in that and how they would view morality. So obviously they do have beliefs that would support their quote unquote moral living, but but does does that morality have any root basis? I would I would contend that it, it doesn't. Um, right. In the end, if you take it to its logical ends, I would say that it wouldn't. Right. So the next question, and, and I, I can kind of point everybody back to our podcast that we just did um, on the problem of evil, evil. and I want to just say, you know, all worldviews have to deal with and answer the question of evil. And so when I come to this question, number three, Dealing with evil, what what we could call evil, um, as far as a, uh, we have a standard, a baseline of what we could call evil, does a naturalistic worldview have an explanation? Yeah, they, they would. Naturalists, naturalists would largely avoid the word evil. That um, they may talk about good and bad actions, but they would many of them would avoid the word evil because of the spiritual overtones. Uh, but for the naturalists, they would hold a sense of morality, but it may be more of a utilitarianism. Uh, what is what is best for what what best bring what is the best uh, effort that brings the most positive end for the most amount of people? That's basically what utilitarian is. How are the the majority of people benefited from an action? Um, so, or they may hold that bad things are those that hurt others or a society in general. So, being good citizens of a community, if you do something that hurts someone or hurts the community, then that would be seen as being bad as such. Um, so they do they do have a they do have a basis of morality, but but philosophically and theologically speaking, it, it doesn't. The, the ends don't necessarily justify the means if you look at it from an eternal perspective. Um, naturalists are generally, not completely, but na- are, are generally progressive in scope, so they're going to hold to more quote-unquote liberal agendas. Uh, so they would use social ethics as, as a standard. Again, whatever is good for the individual and the culture is what is deemed ethical. Uh, many naturalists are against missionary endeavors, sharing the gospel with other communities, because that would uh, change the culture of that community. And so, and again, they're a lot of times culturally based. What is whatever is the culture of the people deems best? That is what should be should be done for the good of of civilization or of that community, so to speak. So, so it'd be like a social contract idea or a social contract theory largely put I, I yeah uh, th- 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 there's some naturalists who may dabble in sociology and things of that nature so so it, it is a humanist ideology and I, and I believe that Christians should be humanists 
because we should seek uh-huh. out what's best for all people, but we should be Christian humanists and not secular humanists. That's where the that's where humanism in and of itself has gotten a bad rap because it's often associated with secular humanism. But but I believe we as children of God should seek what's best for all people. That's that's in line with the second great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. But uh-huh. um, but, but here again, they're looking at it more from, like you said, the social contract, more from uh, preserving uh, different cultural movements as such. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the, the thing that I see about this is um, as, as we, what really spawned this was, um, was a picture uh, that, that was on Facebook that you shared with me. And, and a discussion that went on. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Uh, if I can remember what the picture was. <laughs> well, the, the, the young man that saved his sister because of the dog. Oh, uh, yeah, dog yeah. Yeah, so the question was brought up in a... Uh, in a uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a group in Texas that has a... It's called the Bible and Beer Consortium, and what they do is they meet in the local bar and discuss uh, biblical issues. They try to reach people who would not come to church on Sunday morning by, by going and bring, talking these theological issues to people in this certain locale. And so uh, the, the, I can't remember the exact words of the, of the, uh, that the person mentioned, but uh, th- there's, a, there's a story of this, where this boy uh, stood in front of a, saved his sister from being attacked by a dog, and his face was gnawed by this dog, and he's wearing a bunch of scars, blackened eye and uh, suffered a lot of injuries but the boy was a hero and essentially this guy had a snarky comment in this group to say uh, you know why doesn't God just come down and save this how how could you know something of the sort and I can't remember you have to remind me exactly what the guy said but uh, it was basically assuming that that God was unloving or unpowerful uh, because he didn't intervene in this instance and so uh, I think it was something of that sort. But like I said, you may have to jog my memory in that regard. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it, was, a, it was a comment that really kind of was like, man, if you're going to <laughs> talk bad about my God, man, don't be, don't be talking like that because that, that just pains me in, in the fact that, uh, uh, that people, could, people could say something like that and and really have no, um, his comment was, uh, um, uh, it's a good thing God was able to put this young boy in a position to protect his sister and have his face deformed for life since he was incapable of coming down from heaven himself to protect that little girl. Right, yeah. So and here again, and this goes back to kind of what we were talking about, I think, what was it, last week? Um, there's a lot going on, so all my days are <laughs> getting all mixed up right now. But um, um, so, yeah, so, so, I mean, at, at what juncture do you, do you uh, well, we talk about free will and things of this nature. I mean, obviously, this boy is a hero for doing what he did. Um, oh, yeah. And then when we look at it from an eternal perspective, and obviously God's going to offer rewards for individuals, and He's also going to usher punishments for those you know who aren't in Christ, and you know, and, and even some of the things we do in Christ, it may you know lessen some of the rewards we could have gotten by by not doing the things we should. But but having said all that, that there's an eternal perspective we have, and and at what point? 
Um, where is the limit that we want to take this? I mean, so yes, yeah, say God intervened and saved this from happening. Okay, well then, then say um, someone slams their finger in, in in their car door. Someone could say, well, why didn't God intervene and keep this, the car door from slamming on my finger? Uh, and then you could take it back even further and say, well, why didn't God keep me from stubbing my toe this morning? Or, or why, why did God allow me to have a runny nose? I mean, at what at what line do we take this? Um, I mean, obviously, God can work miracles and intervene at any time He chooses, but because He doesn't intervene when we think He does or think He should, then we're automatically going to accuse Him of being uh, a, a mean, vindictive, uh, weak being. And I, I think that's very highly unfair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, when you look at it, um, my comment, my comment to to you and to him when we were kind of going through this was, well, what basis does he have to to say that the that the dog was doing anything bad, right or wrong, or whether God interacting or not is right or wrong? If he doesn't have a basis of it, the dog was acting in its natural state, and the boy just happened to be there. And absolutely, I mean, because because naturalists are, are are largely, if not all, evolutionists. So one could say that the dog was, you know, acting according to the survival of the fittest, and so this would be something you would expect in uh, uh, according to their own paradigm. So, so what would you, well, would you say something was good or evil when something like that happened to begin with? So, so right. you lose somewhat in a, in a uh, non-theistic um, setup. You lose the ability if you push it, if you take things to its logical ends. You lose the ability to call anything truly right or wrong because it's either uh, a, a personal opinion or something that's uh, deemed by the society. But then again, you can't say Hitler was wrong because that was deemed what he did at the Holocaust was deemed acceptable by the German uh, people of the time. So, or you know, or at least the society backing him, the Nazi, the Nazis, that is. So uh, you lose the foundation to really call anything right and wrong if you take it to its logical ends. Right, and you know it's in on in the Christian mindset or a Christian uh, worldview on that. When you look at something like that, we know that the ripple effect of the events of that happening is going to go out, and God's going to work that out into it's maybe maybe the guy that owned the dog. Maybe he maybe he came to Christ. Who knows? We don't know. Um, you know, and and the outer workings of that ripple effect years down the line is something that we know is a, is a solid thing because we see God working that out um, in in the scripture and in all this and all the accounts in the Bible absolutely absolutely yeah so uh, I'm gonna go with number four here kind of move on to that um, so who are some of the more famous or infamous people? Uh, with that worldview, I'll give a quick answer because it does. You don't have to go far to to uh, to see many naturalists in our time. Neil deGrasse Tyson would be considered a, a naturalist. Uh, he's he is more agnostic, although he's critical of of uh, of, of the faith. Uh, but uh, he would be one. Lawrence Krauss. He is more vocal against the faith. He would be one. Sean Carroll um, and Daniel Dennett are, are some others to name a few. The late Carl Sagan was one. Uh, he had uh, the show that came on uh, uh, on television, network television. Um, um, 
again the name the name of the show left me i had it written down but i can't find it uh, or i had it in my mind i can't bring it to, to uh, recollection but anyhow uh, he had the the show on nature talking the show on the universe and uh uh, but he was a naturalist himself. So again, there are several that you can we can mention. Charles Darwin, uh, it was a naturalist, and uh, many others after him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can see where the where the end of that leads when when you get there, and that um, it, it's it leads to a kind of a, a, a different concept or a different thing. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later because um, I got a question later on about it but it isn't it amazing that there's these that are are intellectuals um quote-unquote intellectuals that 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 hold to this view so let's move on to the next one so what is the draw to naturalism and why do so many people hold tight to it almost like religiously tight well and and i'm going to share a little bit of my testimony and and um this this answer may be a little surprising here as well. Um, having been somewhat of a theistic leaning agnostic uh, once in my life, I can see that there's a bit of freedom with with secular worldviews, and and that is especially if one had formerly been in a legalistic church. So if you've been in a legalistic church, you know uh, something where you're expected to abide by all these strict rules and regulations. If you if you take on a worldview that says that uh, um, it, it doesn't matter what I do, I, I can live my life as I please. Um, don't have to worry about anybody else. You know, you leave me alone, I leave you alone. You know, I take care of my family, and that's it. Um, mm-hmm. There there is a, a a sense of freedom with that, and I, that's why I say and emphasize that legalism is so very dangerous. To Christianity, it's just as dangerous as liberalism is. Uh, theological mm-hmm. liberalism. It is just as dangerous as theological liberalism. Um, so uh, a person can live uh, as if there's, uh, there's there's true freedom to do what they want to do, but the question is: At what cost does such a freedom come? Uh, genuine freedom is ultimately found in a relationship with God. For me, during this time, while I didn't have to concern myself with going to church, I didn't have to concern myself with you know, uh, sharing the gospel with anybody or doing anything of that sort, but I realized that everything was... I came to a point that I realized that everything was meaningless if there was nothing beyond the scope of space and time. Uh, Dr. Baggett, I had him in a class with Moral Apologetics recently. He introduced me to a concept... A concept that I had had even then held, but didn't know what to call it. But he calls it, um, it, it, it kept me from going to completely into atheism. He calls it the Anselmian God, named after Anselm of Canterbury. An Anselmian God is a God whose existence is absolutely necessary. So even during my time of doubt, I thought that something beyond, beyond the scope of space and time had to exist. It was necessary for something to exist. So Dr. Baggett just gave a name to a concept that was preserved, that God allowed to preserve some, at least some form of faith in that, in that time. Nonetheless, some people hold to naturalism because they don't want God to exist. Maybe they've been hurt by someone in times past. Maybe they've experienced some legalistic form of Christianity. Um, I believe it was Sean Carroll, I may be mistaken on this, but I believe it was Sean Carroll who openly admitted 
that it was possible for God to exist. It was possible, although he didn't think it was, that God existed. He thought it was possible. But he quickly pointed out that he didn't want, or that, number one, he didn't think that if a God existed, it was the biblical God. But he also said that he, he continued to say that he did not want there to be a God because he didn't want the universe to be like that. He wanted to, to have a universe of, of complete freedom. He didn't want to think that there was an overseer over all things. So he, he wanted the universe to be according to the naturalistic framework. So I, I think that um, the, the appeal to secularist worldviews is the supposed freedom that people think they have in these worldviews. But I'll be honest with you, Curtis, when I have fully experienced the grace of God and understand that God is a loving God, uh, that um, of His love and of His mercy and of His grace, I've actually felt more freedom. Uh, to be honest, I have found that the things that bothered me about Christianity in times past of legalism bothered Jesus as much, if not more, <laughs> than they even bothered yeah. me then and even bothered me now. Uh, so I found f- more freedom in, in having this personal relationship with Christ than I ever found in in secularism. Right. Yeah, and that, um, I, I don't know, you know, because I hear um, a lot of the naturalists that, I mean, I shared a YouTube clip with you today um, of, a, of a guy debating, or not debating, but standing up in Q&A and with, uh, with Frank Turek. And every, every, he wasn't, he really didn't want any answer of Frank. He was just, he, he kept trying to circle around and trying to change to fit his view as he's going through and having this discussion with Frank. And, and, and Dr. Turk had a really hard time pinning him down. Not that he couldn't answer the question, but he was like, okay, so now you're changing your mind and saying that you can do this. This is a common theme that I'm finding with many atheists in today's time. Um, that the, the responses they give are more emotional. Um, yeah, I understand that they have intellectual doubts, but but there is a strong emotional concept. That's why Aaron Ra, whenever he debates someone, he is so sometimes even obscene, and he and he he hardly lets a person get a word out, and he's and he's constantly changing. It's, it's like he's moving the goalpost. You know, you get at the fifty yard line to kick this field goal. Well, he's going to move it back. Uh, 10 more yards before you get a chance to kick it. You know, so um, this is a consistent thing that I see when, when, uh, especially if you have someone who can give good answers, I think there's more than just intellectual problems that there are some deeper issues taking place, uh, largely put. And again, I think a lot of times it comes from legalistic, legalism. uh, It comes more from legalism. I think that that's because, um, like, even if you hold to like uh, or listen to like Bart Ehrman, um, he's he he <laughs> he he was he was in a very legalistic uh, uh, church. Yeah, and, absolutely. And that's where his that's where his upbringing came through. So, um, uh, so the naturalistic worldview, a new concept. Being a historian, this was one of my favorite questions, and so uh, this is going to be kind of a lengthy, one of the lengthier answers. Uh, actually, not at all. Uh, this 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 mindset dates back to the fourth century BC. 
Democritus lived from 460 to 370 BC, and he reduced all of reality to the exchange of countless atoms ruled strictly by chance. Now he was open to the concept of God, but he believed that if or or gods uh, being in in ancient Greece, uh, but he didn't think that the gods had any interaction with uh, with individuals. So, so again, his naturalism was more of a deism. Carl F. H. Henry, in his book God, Revelation, and Authority, notes: In short, Democritus held that nature or atoms in motion is only re- is the only reality. Man is a complex correlation of such atoms and consequently is not immortal. Truth and the good, like everything else, are changing and relative. Democritus's theory rules out purpose or teleology, teleology meaning the end result, uh, the, the end goal, like that there's no, no end goal in mind. Everything evolves from a combination of necessity and chance. Democritus did not ignore the idea of God, however, nor deny religious experiences. He simply redefined the gods as very finite atoms of great durability uh, and said that natural phenomena which impinge upon man's subconscious is his dreams, uh, in his dreams account for the notion of the divine. So if there were anything, any notion of the divine, it would come through a person's dreams. Henry goes on to say that in fact Democritus uh, thought man's soul to be a complex mass of specially mobile atoms and man's thoughts and feelings to be physical reflexes. This theory is still espoused, and here's, here's the thing, but get this, this theory by Democritus is still espoused today by many behavioristic psychologists who propagandize it as 20th century scientific insight. <laughs> as Solomon would say, nothing, nothing's new is under the sun. <laughs> I was just going to say, and to quote Solomon, there's nothing new under the sun. That's, that, that's mind-blowing when you think about it, how far back. It, and see, this, okay, goes, so, this goes on from here, though, too. Epicurus, in, uh, living in 342 to 270 B.C., developed a concept named after him known as Epicureanism, this is the idea that Paul confronts in Acts 17:18. Epicurus right. held that the senses are the source of all of our ideas and is the sole criterion of all truth. He asserted that atomism of Democritus and denied the immortality of the soul. So he is taking it a step further. Oddly, he was still open to the idea of the gods, but he thought that they did not interfere in human affairs. Again, a form of deism. And uh, interestingly now, you have people uh, on the other side. And here's where it gets really fascinating. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, the Greek philosophers who shaped the Greco-Roman world as well as all Western civilization, they primarily directly confronted and refuted the naturalism of Democritus and Epicurus. Socrates, living in 470 to 399, like Jesus, did not write any books themselves. Everything we know about Socrates comes to us from his student Plato. Socrates held that philosophical work was a divine calling and advocated a form of monotheism that is comparable to Judeo-Christianity, even though he was still open to the existence of other gods, which may that may have even come to an end by the end of his life. His belief may be... Uh, so Socrates claimed that he had direct communion with one god. Some early Christian Christians even believed that Socrates may 
have been uh, a believer, uh, even though he had wasn't trained in Judaism or anything of the sort. He may have had like this uh, divine revelation by God given to him, for all we know. Um, so Socrates would debate Protagoras. Now here's an interesting thing. Protagoras, coming from the lineage of some of the naturalists, Protagoras would say that man is the measure of all things. So, so if we're going to measure anything, it's from humanity. Socrates would later say, no, God is the measure of all things. Plato coming after him from 427 to 347 uh, took up the mantle of Socrates after his esteemed teacher was condemned to death for polluting the minds of young people. They thought, you know, because he, he was t- talking about one God instead of the many gods, they said he was a heretic and had to go. So he was poisoned. And died. So Plato contended that there was one supreme or absolute form being God, the form of the good or the one, and he also defended the immortality of the soul, known for his uh, theory of justice, and advocated for a world of unseen universals uh, from, from which God made all of reality. So having said that, the debate over naturalism is not new at all, but actually goes way back in history to the dawn of philosophy itself. Some of the greatest minds in philosophy were, were actually um, Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates were actually defending the existence of God against naturalism, which is mm. odd. I mean, it's ironic if you really think about it for where we are now. Yeah, right. And and the the thing that really caught my, my attention was as you were talking about that, you talked about atoms. He talked about, you know, we're made up of atoms. Um, how did he get that concept when, um, you know, some of the scientists nowadays are, you know, talking about that, the atoms? See, see we, we suffer from chronological snobbery. I think C.S. Lewis even said something about this. Uh, we, we believe that we know so much more than the ancients. These guys were, now, they weren't always right in their science, but these guys were discovering things well before we we were ever even a, an afterthought, uh, quite honestly. There's even evidence to, to suggest that they were even were, were making a form of a computer in ancient times. Uh, it wasn't quite like the computers we have now. Of course, they didn't have electricity you know, generated at that time either. But they, they had these mechanical, almost like mechanical computers that they were, were creating. These guys were geniuses. They really were. Uh, well ahead of their time, and but yeah, they believed in an atom, the the most quintessential element, basic element of uh, the material world, and uh, so yeah, they they actually had some of these theories well before the modern science ever came about. Hmm. That's a it's a it my it blows my mind when you think about that. <laughs> um, some of the stuff that, and that's why when I when I thought of that question, I'm like you know. I don't think it's a new concept, but I don't know how far back it goes. I do remember Paul in the writings in the scriptures where Paul's uh, talking about Epicurus. I, you know, but I didn't know how far back that went. That's interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> so, uh, what did uh, what did Christ say about naturalism? Now, this this one was an interesting question because um, I don't know that we have anything that Jesus said per se about naturalism because most of his interactions were largely with people of faith. The closest thing we could see regarding uh, a form of naturalism would be with the Sadducees, and possibly maybe with Pontius Pilate. The Sadducees, in my opinion, and this is a Chiltonism, I believe the Sadducees were more deistic 
than they were theistic. Uh, and I believe this because they, although they believed in God, they didn't believe that God interacted with humanity. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the soul. They didn't believe in eternity. Uh, they didn't believe in the resurrection. That They did confront Jesus about the issue of the resurrection. And let me just read this exchange real quickly. This comes from Mark 12, 18-27. The Sadducees were largely de- uh, the, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him, saying, "Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a brother dies, and I'm going to skim through this, basically saying that if a man dies and leaves his wife behind for the second brother, the second brother dies, then goes on to the third, all the way to the seventh. I'd hate to be the seventh man following in that because this woman sounds like she's a black widow or something like that. But asking the question said, last of all, the woman died also. So in the resurrection when they rise, whose wife will she be since all seven had her? Jesus spoke to them saying, isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not a God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So Jesus is asked by Pilate in John 18.38, what is truth? Now Jesus doesn't answer him. But he does give his epistemology throughout the book of John. If you follow along the entire book of John, you see that Jesus talks about truth frequently. Jesus says in John 3.21 that anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Jesus says in John 4.23 that an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. Jesus says uh, that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. John 4.24. Uh, so he gives the aspect of, John, of God being a spirit, talking about that being truth, and, and our worship of God needs to be in spirit. So he contrasts truth from error by saying that, that the devil in John 8.44, he says to, the, to uh, some of the religious leaders that you are of your father the devil, and you do not want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the very beginning and does not stand for in the truth because there's not a truth in him. He tell, he speaks lies. Uh, he speaks from his own nature because he's a liar and the father of lies. So here again, while Jesus doesn't confront naturalism directly, in the Gospel of John, he does give his epistemology, his knowledge of truth, and shows that uh, God is the source of truth, that there is this spiritual dimension, so to speak, uh, so this contradicts naturalism at every hand. Uh, now, Paul, on the other hand, was a philosopher as well as a theologian. The book of Acts notes that Paul engaged the naturalistic Epicureans and the deterministic Stoics after they charged him with being a show-off and a preacher of foreign deities in Acts 17:18, because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. But interestingly... Acts 17.32 says that some of them, that some of the Epicureans and Stoics became the faith in Christ. There wasn't many of them, but some of them did, which is fascinating. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, I just, I mean, when I, when I thought of that question, my, my, my mind went to him having that debate with the, with the Sadducees. And when, when, when you think about um, naturalism, it almost is like it fills 
those holes that people don't want to, um, yeah, I don't want to say don't, they don't want to, um, really just kind of stick to one thing, um, or the other, they can kind of bounce through and say, well, that's not really what this means. And I think that's part of what I'm seeing here and what I'm hearing. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that there is a, everybody has a worldview and don't let anyone tell you that they don't. A worldview encompasses the way you view God or the absence of God, the way you view the world, and the way you view humanity, the, really the way you view everything. Everybody has a worldview. And that's why it's important, as, as I even talk about in the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics, to know the different worldviews. Ask certain questions so that you can find where the person's coming from because everyone, whether they realize it or not, they have a philosophy about life and about the world but they don't think through the logical ends of where their beliefs lead. And I believe that uh, I believe in the correspondence theory of truth, that truth corresponds with reality, but I also think that truth has a sense of coherence to it. And so if, uh, if, if our uh, belief systems are radically incoherent, then we really need to go back to the drawing board and ask whether or not our beliefs are based in, in the reality of truth. Right, and you know, I, I look at this I, when we're talking about this, and we're talking about how these guys um, in the ancient times um, would would sit and would sit and debate this in those big coliseums and the big, uh, you know, on the big stairways and the entranceways of the gates, and and I think about wouldn't wouldn't one of those conversations just be amazing to just sit and listen to yeah. because there's there's things that they that that have been wrote down that you were just talking about that really um that these guys thought a lot they thought a lot about a lot of things well you know and plato writes in the republicist one, one of the things that sticks out in my mind i had to read the book for a philosophy class one of the things that sticks out in my mind the most is the allegory he uses of a cave uh in in the republic there's a story told that there are these uh, three or four men who have been captured and locked up in this uh, cave and from since being little children up to the adult age they were tied about so that uh, they could only see the shadows uh, on the wall of a cave, there was a fire behind them, and their captors would come and bring them food. But all the thing they could see is the reflection of the fire behind them, and and the the uh, the guys would use these uh, little little things to to make it look like a rabbit coming around or different animals. Well, one of the guys actually escapes, or maybe he's released. But anyhow, he escapes and he goes out of the cave, and he sees this world, new world around him. He sees the birds in the air, the blue sky, the green grass. He sees all the type of animals and, and uh, different things out and about. And he tells himself, that my brothers have got to come see this. But the interesting thing is, is he goes back to the cave and tells them of all the wonderful things he'd seen. And the guys in the cave, they mock him and they, they say, no, there's no way these things can exist. And eventually they kill the man. Uh, in the cave because they're so set that only the thing that exists are the shadows. And I think that is very, a very wise assessment of how sometimes we get so entrenched in certain beliefs that even when the truth is exposed to us, we don't want to hear it 
and we just turn and look more at the shadows when God wants to reveal to us a wide world of color and 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 uh, beauty that we could never imagine through philosophy, through theology, and through uh, other means as well. Right, right. And what kind of brought my mind to this while you were talking was was uh, Romans, uh, Romans one, uh, verse twenty. Uh, and uh, 21, uh, 22, all the way through 22, it says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the, thing, by, by the things that are made, mm-hmm. even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolishness or their foolish hearts were darkened. Mm. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. And, and I think, uh, here's, here's the 23 going to that one. And it says, and, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them, up to the uncleanness in the lust of their hearts. So I, I just I just sit and I think and ponder about that. You know, when Paul was talking about that in Romans, there's a good chance he was pointing at exactly what we're talking about. I, I think so because he is he is speaking there at Mars Hill at the. Uh, uh, Areopagus uh, there at Mars Hill and and the Epicureans the uh, they're there the Stoics are there so even this and Paul was very 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 richly educated I mean he was a philosopher par excellence he there there are there, I saw a, a, I can't remember where I saw it but they were showing the 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 many different philosophers and illusions that Paul has to philosophy in his teachings. He is doing this to reach a certain crowd, to reach people who have been influenced by Greek philosophy. And um, and not all Greek philosophy is bad. I mean, a lot of what Socrates and Plato say, they're pretty dead on the money on a lot of things. Uh, same with Aristotle. There are differences, and obviously there are things where they would err, but uh, at the same time, there, there are a lot of benefits in a lot of what they say. But he's directing his attention. He knows that there are these thoughts out there in Athens. And he is directly uh, uh, teaching to try to get them to come to Christ. Mm-hmm. Right. So, number eight, this question kind of, um, it, it kind of goes to the heart of this whole thing. And, it, and this is kind of one that I, I thought was uh, was something that was important to discuss. And so I, I have it here. Why are most people who hold this view so adamant about education and most hold um, hold that it is knowledge that frees them but in reality it some ways binds them and I went on to kind of describe more of it it says uh, um, number eight most of the people that hold to naturalism are very well educated it seems that professors and scholar and the scholarships um, are tied to a naturalistic mindset and and I kind of made a, a point here it says what's the What's the purpose of a higher education if all you are is a blob of tissue? That's a good question. And let me just say that uh, the, the tide is, is actually turning some uh, because, because there are uh, some professors who realize uh, 
that the um, that there are certain things that can't be explained with within naturalism. And I'm going to actually quote a retired professor uh, who's an atheist uh, professor, a philosophy professor, maybe he's agnostic, atheist, leaning agnostic, um, Thomas Nagel, uh, who was a former professor at NYU. I want to read something that he wrote in his book, Mind and Cosmos, here is a, is a in this. But there are, there are several different things I want to mention. First of all, I would first clarify that the naturalist should not be the only one adamant about education. And by education, I'm talking about learning. Um, right. Not everyone is called to go for a PhD. I'm doing this because God has called me to do it. Why has he called me to do it? I don't know. He's called me to do it, though, and, and I'm trying to be obedient to that. Um not everybody, but not everybody's called to do that, and that's fine. But that still doesn't excuse us from from learning. Uh, part of loving the Lord our God with the mind is learning. And every day of our life, Curtis, I'm telling you, there should never be a day that we as believers are ever bored, because quite honestly, even if we had nothing else to do, there are, there are several different things we could explore about the nature of God. There are several things that we could explore about the Bible, uh, about philosophy, about uh, nature itself. I mean, there is never a reason why the Christian should ever be bored because there's so many avenues that we can grow intellectually in, in different facets of doing that. So I believe that it should be the Christian who is the greatest advocate of education. I mean, because quite honestly, Christianity brought about the universities. The universities exist because of Christianity. It was when Christians became intellectually lazy that secularism took over. And we can accuse universities of being, becoming secular, but what have we done to overturn the tidal shift? Uh, frankly, we have stepped in the wrong direction, and I, and I think that that clip we played at the outset of the uh, of the podcast only illuminates that fact uh, right. that that we have grown ignorant of the Bible and about our faith. Now, having started out with that, the theory of evolution developed a satisfaction for secularists, which helped them to become intellectually satisfied. Um, now, secularists had a way to explain how a life originated without evoking God in the process. The same thing is being attempted in cosmology with the multiverse. Problematic for the secularist is that the multiverse requires fine-tuning itself. And secondly, there's no way of proving that the multiverse actually exists because there's no way of testing something beyond the scope of our own universe. Mm -hmm. So being that the naturalist believes that knowledge is obtained by observing the natural world, it stands to reason that education would be a mainstay for them. But here's the problem. Many naturalists primarily emphasize the sciences. There are other ways to know truth than just by science alone. Man cannot live by science alone, quite frankly. Uh, mm -hmm. Many, if not most, naturalists are very poor philosophers. Entire fields of study are dismissed by naturalists many times, such as philosophy, metaphysics, logical reasoning, and the humanities. Naturalism is a philosophy itself, and the scientific method requires philosophical suppositions rooted in a philosophical construct. Thus, naturalism itself comes from under the umbrella of philosophy, even though they sometimes dismiss philosophy. For instance, the late Stephen Hawking said, philosophy is dead. However, that is a philosophical claim, and it takes philosophy to accept the demise of philosophy, which again is a self-refuting claim. 
So, for instance, Eric Hernandez dismantled Aaron Ra in a recent debate on the existence of the soul. And the reason is, is that Ra was so poorly trained in philosophy. Ra is an intellectual guy. I mean, he's a smart guy. But his claim to fame is actually his use of profane rants using his large frame and stoic demeanor as a means to intimidate those who oppose his worldview. But when you put him in a structured, moderated debate where he had to confront the actual issues, he quite honestly floundered. Even non-Christian philosophers such as uh, Thomas Nagel now recognize the esteemed problems with naturalism. So this is what Thomas Nagel uh, he is uh, he he is a retired NYU professor, philosophy professor, who is an atheist leaning agnostic. Here's he wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos. Why why match was it naturalism or materialism? I think it's materialism. Why it's almost certainly false. This is what he says about consciousness, and I quote in page thirty five of Mind and Cosmos. Consciousness is the most conspicuous obstacle to a comprehensive naturalism that relies only on the resources of physical science. The existence of consciousness seems to imply that the physical description of the universe, in spite of its richness and explanatory power, is only part of the truth and that the natural order is far less austere than it would be if physics and chemistry accounted for everything. If we take the problem seriously and follow out its implications, it threatens to unravel the entire naturalistic world picture. Yet it is difficult to imagine viable alternatives. So he's not quite ready to accept the existence of a supernatural world, but he identifies the problem when it comes to consciousness, the human soul, that there's no way naturalism can explain that in and of itself. So you have Aaron Ra, who, who knows little of this area, compared to a trained philosopher who knows a lot in this area. And Thomas Nagel is saying that naturalism is floundering. Naturalism is about to unravel because there's no way that it can account for the human consciousness. Mm. Yeah, and it, there's, that's, they, can, they can prop it up, uh, but, but to... Uh, and I remember I heard... Uh, William Lane and Craig um, have a discussion about consciousness, and uh, even John Lennox, um, they had that uh, conversation about uh, uh, consciousness and how um, even if we were to uh, fully develop some sort of intelligent, uh, basically artificial intelligence, they would it would still lack consciousness. Absolutely. It, it, it would only be self-aware so far as you programmed it to be self-aware. It, right. it may know its surroundings using sense. Well, for instance, I worked in a textile manufacturing facility that had automated robots. Uh, and these automated robots followed these lines and they had sensors that would indicate if something was around it and they was, were supposed to, quote-unquote, stop. Now, it was part of my job at the time to go and fix them when those sensors didn't work. But they were programmed to a degree to be self-aware to to a certain degree. But they were only programmed. Uh, they were only self-aware as in as much as they were given the ability to do so. So even if you programmed a supercomputer to be self-aware in all of its uh, surroundings, that I agree that would still not equate to the the consciousness that the that the human soul possesses. 
Right. Right. Well, this has been just a fantastic podcast. <laughs> I've enjoyed every second of it. Um, I want to leave it here, though, with uh, with a with a quote from John Lennox. Uh, By the way, let me say, I I had a chance to meet him at a conference. He is a super (laughs) nice guy. He is just amazing. I love that man to death. Yeah, and it was was great listening to him because this quote that he has is something that really, um, that we can take home as Christians. Um, And and if you can imagine it in your, in his best, uh, um, his best uh, English or uh, Irish accent, um, it says, uh, um, and he has a cool not, Irish accent at that, let me say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, and it's heavy. <laughs> it's it is very fun. thick. It is very heavy. It's, it's quite fun to listen to. In fact, it's uh, it's enjoyable. But uh, the quote is, uh, he's not the god of the gaps. Uh, and it says in here, it says, I, I, can't, I can't explain it, therefore God did it. Um, that's not what it is. He says, that's not at all God. God is the god of the whole show the bits we don't understand and the bits we do understand absolutely so we just want to leave that there and so uh, we hope this thing blessed you um we here at bellator christi want to thank you for spending the time together with us and we value that time our prayer is that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, Soldier on, friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie Podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts, and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged, and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. Did you know that you can help the Bellator Christian Ministries by simply leaving a review? 
If you are enjoying this podcast, help us out by leaving a positive review on the app where this podcast is found. This helps increase the exposure of the podcast and helps others find it more easily. If you enjoy this podcast, leave a review. If not, send me an email. Either way, we want to thank you for supporting BellatorChristi.com and the Bellator Christi Podcast. Some say the best Bible translation is the one that's most literal, word for word, through and through. But there's not always a direct English translation of ancient words. So others say the best Bible translation should favor readability, thought for thought, holding on to the same meaning. But we can all agree that the very best Bible translation is one you trust and one that you want to read. One that stirs your heart and moves you to share its truth. The Christian Standard Bible has been shown to be an optimal blend of accuracy and readability compared to other leading translations. The very best balance, faithfulness to the original text, and clear language that connects to the heart. After all, it's not so much about changing your Bible translation, but about seeing the Bible change your life. Point your heart to True North, the Christian Standard Bible. The Christian Standard Bible is the official translation of BellatorChristi.com. Go pick up your translation of the CSB today.